Ah, do you hear that sound in the distance? That is the sound of eight supporter sections preparing, readying the troops for a few weeks from now when the final eight teams in the UEFA Champions League prepare for battle. Uh, two leg stretches on their way. And of course, Crossing Broad FC, part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network, uh, is here to break it down. Uh, I am Russell Joy at Joy on Broad, joined as always by Crossing Broad writer and former featured columnist on Manchester City and World Football for Bleacher Report, Phil Kaidel. Phil, a lot to recap, a lot to discuss. The draw came out. Um, the the matchups are interesting. We're going to break them down. Uh, where do you want to start at? Is is there one matchup that you are looking the most forward to? Well, I'm remarkably greedy, Russ, as you know. Uh, so I would like to start with Manchester City and Liverpool because Friday morning when I woke up and checked my phone and this was the draw that City got, uh, I felt equal parts of enthusiasm and fear. And it's going to be a great draw and a great tie for the neutrals. Uh, I think both fan bases, however, are going to be watching this uh, two-leg draw play out with their hands over their eyes. I'm a, I'm disappointed. I'm going to be honest. Um, I am a, a a massive hater when it comes to the Champions League, even Europa League. I don't like to see teams within the same domestic league playing, especially at this point in the competition. I think it's a shame that we're not going to get to see City or Liverpool going forward playing against a Bayern Munich or a Real Madrid or a Barcelona. I I you know I I said on our last episode uh, that. I'm more concerned with the narrative that's been going on for, I I don't know, as long as I've been following international football, that, you know, the EPL is the creme de la creme. It's the ultimate league. It's the most competitive, blah, blah, blah. But then we don't actually get to see a lot of these teams compete against the the elite in Europe. And, you know, while it's great that we get to see City and Liverpool go at it, um, you know, we've we've already seen it happen a couple times this season in in the EPL. City won 5-0. Uh, on September 9th in Liverpool. Um, was that the first regulation loss uh, handed to City in the domestic league this year, 4-3? Um, I, like, I've, I've seen it before, and is it going to be exciting? Is it going to be a potential shootout? Yeah. But I I'm, I can't get up as, as much as I would have if, you know, Liverpool had drawn Bayern and City had drawn City. The I mean, the storylines in of, of themselves would have been interesting to see Barca go against Pep. Um and to see Klopp get to go after a, a German squad again, especially the one that you know often vexed him in in Bayern. Um, I know that you're a you know a big city guy. Would you have liked to have seen them you know matched up in a, against a team from another league, or is this the draw you were hoping for as somebody who enjoys watching City play? Selfishly, I would have wanted Roma or Sevilla because anyone who roots for a side in the tournament wants the easiest possible draw that they can get. Now, that's not to say that Roma or Sevilla are terrible teams. They've gotten to the final eight on merit. Uh, They beat good teams to get here. But objectively, if you're looking at the draw, those were the targets. And you'll notice who those two targets ended up drawn with. Barcelona and, of course, Bayern. And look, you said earlier that uh, you have a hard time coping with this ongoing uh, strumming narrative that the Premier League is elite, best league in Europe, whatever you want to say. You know who agrees with you? UEFA. Because UEFA hates the Premier League. There's no two ways about that. Um, 
anytime UEFA gets a chance to stick at the city, they do. Partially that's because of all the money that got dumped in the city in the last 10 years. The other reason, though, is that Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, the traditional powers, it's good for business when those sides stay in the tournament for a long time. They bring eyeballs to TV sets. They bring people to the matches. They sell merchandise, all the things we talk about. So, yeah, uh, I did not want Liverpool. Uh, I wanted Roma or Sevilla. I would have enjoyed Barcelona quite a bit because of all of the underlying themes that would go into that two-leg tie. I'm also still hoping to see City play either Barcelona or Bayern or somebody really good in the semifinal, assuming they can get through Liverpool. But that's going to be a big ask because Liverpool will not be taken by surprise or intimidated by anything City does. I'm kind of expecting Klopp's guys to to sit back and play counter, right? Like that that seems to be the conventional wisdom is that City's likely going to go for the kill early and Klopp's guys are going to be ready to uh, to counterattack and, and try to you know find a, a hole behind center backs and, and get in for you know a couple goals that way I, I would assume um, yeah I, I, I get it are, are you trying to uh, to stoke the conspiracy fires uh, that UEFA really does have it in for the EPL and they're rigging the uh, the system so that that's how we ended up with this matchup is that what you're saying right now I'm not suggesting anything I'm stating it as a fact and I think history would bear me out. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. Look, if you're a club that you are a supporter of, or if you're a club you're playing for, wants to win this tournament, eventually, that club needs to beat somebody really good. And probably, they need to beat at least two really excellent sides. So, at some level, hoping for a soft draw all the way through and ducking the big boys until the very end will only take you so far anyway. Because if you have an easy path to the semifinal or the final. You haven't really been tested. Who knows how you'll respond when actually somebody comes at you. Liverpool is going to come at City. I understand what you're saying, that maybe in the initial uh, moments of this tie, Liverpool may look to hit on the counter. But remember, Liverpool has the first home match. It's at Anfield. And they do not want to give up one, two, or three away goals to Man City at Anfield. That is a recipe for disaster. So I think it's more likely that Liverpool will play like they did at Anfield in the league. They'll attack. They'll try to create turnovers. They'll try to get City rattled. Lord knows the Anfield supporters, the Liverpool supporters at Anfield, are not going to give Man City any moment to breathe. And, man, if I'm Klopp, I go for it. I'm coming into this tie as an underdog. I'm being looked past a little bit, disrespected, despite the fact that Mo Salah is probably the best player in the Premier League this year, as much as I don't like to admit it. So I think at some level they're going to come at them. I think Liverpool are going to come at City and try to create an edge going to the Etihad. So Les had a, an incredible season to this point. Um, I was looking at, at some of his stats earlier, but he's made 43 appearances uh, in the in the Premier League, um, I, I think, thus far. Let's see. This season, he's made 30 appearances. He has 28 goals. Um he, he's just had a great season. Uh, he, he looks to be one of the elite strikers um, in the in the European game right now. And, you know, his his um, his Champions League efforts have, have also been, you know, pretty solid thus far. Um, I, I don't know. I Like I said, I, I'm not a big enough follower of the EPL to, uh, to talk on uh, every team in the most educated manner. I've always been a fan of the way that Klopp's teams play. 
And I don't think this is an easy write-off. I think if we were looking at this, you know, if the the second result this season had gone differently, if City had been able to assert their dominance as they had to most of the EPL, uh, to what the, that game in January, if they had won that game, I, I don't think anybody's giving this a second thought. But I think Liverpool has, you know, at least put a little bit of that creeping doubt in City's in the back of City's mind, and I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing for for the game as a whole. You don't want to have easy walks, which I think, you know, to uh, to kind of move on to another matchup here. Bayern, I think, probably has maybe the the easiest get here. I would assume. Um, and now Sevilla is a good team. I still think that Sevilla. Um, you know, representing La Liga is is likely, um, you know, a much stronger side than than I think people might give them credit for. But ultimately, Bayern needed to be matched up against another great team in order for them to, I think, have, you know, a, a, a decent matchup here. Like, I think Bayern, you're going to get the best out of Bayern Munich if they're playing against a Barca, against a Real, even a Juventus. Um, I think Sevilla is going to try to put up a fight, but I don't really see that going so far. And I don't think it's because Sevilla is not a quality side. Like I was saying, I, I still think that La Liga doesn't necessarily get the respect that it deserves in the international sense. Um, but I, I, I pretty much expect Bayern to steamroll their way through until they're you know matched up with with one of the other elite clubs in Europe. And Barca and Roma is you know, I, I, I don't know. Roma, like, what what are they really going to be able to do? The last four matchups they've had, each team has won a game. Um, they've had two draws. The last time they actually faced off in UEFA um, competition was 2015-16, where Barca won 6-1 at Camp Nou. No, these are arbitrary stats. Like, I've got, I've got lots of arbitrary stats. I mean, even on the Bayern and Sevilla side, like, Bayern... Uh, have lost their last five games that they've played in Spain. Sevilla has never lost at home to a German squad. Like, all of these stats, and we talk about these, you know, we're talking about other sports and ranting in our Slack chat about it. Uh, You know, they're all arbitrary stats, and you want to, you know, try to use them to build a narrative or to, you know, put in your team's mind that you have a legitimate chance to, you know, pull the the David on Goliath. But, you know, ultimately, the, the past is the past. And I just... I'm disappointed, I think, in the way that this draw played out, not only on, on the uh, the two English sides, but, you know, Sevilla might might have a decent effort. Roma maybe has the potential to uh, maybe pull out a home victory or maybe a home draw, but ultimately, like, is anybody going to put money against Messi and Suarez in that situation? Dembele looking, you know, like he's really started to find his form uh, with Barca. It really seems to be kind of fitting in, gelling well. I mean... How do you put money against Barcelona or Bayern Munich in these matchups? I don't want to pour cold water on your enthusiasm. I really don't. Uh, Sevilla is sixth in La Liga now. They lost at Leganes over the weekend. So, I mean, in, in fairness, Real Madrid has also dropped games to, I believe, Ibar in recent memory. So, uh, again, like I know what you're saying, and I, I know what the La Liga standings are. You're gilding the lily, though, to say that Sevilla and Real are comparable. They're not Real no, no, no. defending champion. Sevilla is a historically great club who is on a very nice run and did very well to get this far. But I can assure you, Bayern Munich was tickled pink to see Sevilla come out of the drum for that drawing. Yeah, it's fair. And yeah. as for the Bayern, or pardon me, uh, the other piece of this, Barcelona, um, look... Roma is another historically wonderful club, and uh, it's hard to be disrespectful 
of a club like Roma, a side like Roma. And again, they're in the final eight. They're there on merit. No one's going to take anything away from them. But they played Shakhtar Donetsk in the round of 16. The transition from Shakhtar Donetsk to Barcelona is neck-breaking. It's not something that mortals can generally handle. So I agree with you. The idea that anybody would go to the window and put money they could not afford to lose on either Sevilla or Roma in these ties, that's a problem gambler. And then I guess let's look at the last matchup, which I think is probably the most intriguing, right? Like, um, unless you're a huge EPL fan, like Real Madrid and Juventus, we have a matchup uh, where we're going to get to see these two teams play two matches against each other in a rematch of last year's UEFA Champions League final. Um, Obviously, these teams look different um, going into this game than they did to last year's final. Um, It's going to be good to see that we've got uh, Paulo Dybala playing in this uh, in this matchup. Um, but like Gareth Bale and the way that he kind of fits with the team, we've seen the rise of Asensio and Casemiro for Real Madrid, uh, where they were kind of getting their footing last year. Um, it, it's like it's different personnel and they're still good teams. It seems like these two teams are often the ones who, when playing in these European competitions, um, they tend to kind of go down to the last minute. It feels like they kind of just at the last minute snag victory from the the uh, jaws of defeat. And so it will be interesting, I think, to see how, how this uh, this plays out. Um, they have 17 meetings head-to-head all time. Juve's got eight wins. Real has nine. Um, I think there's also a, a decent case to be made that, you know, there are certain players who are going to be going into this that could be looking at their final campaigns, in a sense, with these teams. Uh, Dybala's always mentioned... And transfer rumors, as is Gareth Bale. Um, you know, at, at some point, of course, we're going to hear that Ronaldo is moving back to United. Um, you've got to wonder what's happening. You know, is, is Bale actually going to be transferred? It feels like the second or third year in a row where he's been rumored to be, you know, on his way out. Does David De Gea get transferred? I mean, or not De Gea, good God. Does De Gea get brought in? Um, you know, like, what are these teams going to look like in another year? Uh, what are you looking for in this matchup? Well, I kind of look at it as the irresistible force and the immovable object, to borrow from another cliche. But it also it almost depends on who's home, who's away, who's in form, who's not. These teams can do what they need to do to win Champions League matches. They've proven that over the course of years and decades. So that's not the issue. But everything you described and talked about a moment ago, I believe to be the most important underpinning of this tie, which is all of the stuff that's going on off the pitch, around these sides, and especially with Madrid. All of the possible player movement you described, Zidane is, and it's absurd to say this, but he's probably managing for his job. The domestic league is long gone. If Real Madrid doesn't make a run at least to the Champions League final, heads are going to roll and Zidane's will probably be the first one. So what I'm looking for is to see which Real Madrid we get in this tie. Do we get the one that resolutely dispatched PSG as though they were swatting a fly? Or do we get that side that at times this season has broken down on the pitch during matches and started pointing fingers at each other? If that happens, Juve will beat them. But if Madrid plays the sound, tactical, and occasionally aggressive football that Zidane had them playing against PSG, you'd have to favor Real Madrid. I don't think he's the only manager in this series that's... uh you know, not necessarily on a hot seat, but is, you know, maybe has his eyes on a on a separate prize. There have been rumors that Arsenal and Chelsea 
uh, and even PSG are currently interested in uh, pursuing Massimiliano Allegri uh, going into the uh, into uh, next season. So it, you know, I, you know, I was mentioning all these different players on the field that you know potentially won't be there next year, but it is interesting to see that these two guys that have made the final eights for their team, you know. Uh, you know, obviously they're they're probably for different reasons, but neither of them, you know, might be managing these teams next year. I, this kind of comes back to and and you know, Real Madrid fans and and their management and their owners are so impatient, and that's one of the things that I think drives me nuts as a as a supporter of that club. But um, I, I'm always a big fan of of what Carlo Ancelotti does, and I thought it was a shame the way that they kind of ran him out of town, and even even with Bayern, you know, I didn't know if the fit was really there, but. Uh, you know, Ancelotti is always a guy that the second that there's a big uh, vacancy at a large club, I'm just waiting for that other shoe to drop. Uh, I I don't know. I I don't know if if you were uh, Allegri going into next season, and you had your choice of Arsenal, who obviously won't get rid of Winger, um, or PSG or Chelsea, where would you go? Chelsea, no hesitation. Chelsea has this that's, way that's of... Certainly, that certainly was the definition of no hesitation, by God. Well, I was actually going to say Chelsea, if the only options you gave me were Arsenal and PSG, I was going to say, no, it's a wild card, it's Chelsea. PSG has a major culture problem within its dressing room. And you can tell by the way they play. And you can tell the way they, the way they got blasted by Real Madrid over two legs. And then came out the next weekend and beat some no-name Ligue 1 side 5-0 and pretended like they were world champions. It's a disaster. We don't know if Neymar is going to be at PSG next year. We don't know if Mbappe is as good as everybody thought he was, although I have a tendency, like, I'll buy your Mbappe stock if you're selling it. Uh, and Cavani's kind of toward the downside of his greatness as a striker. I really like Cavani, though. But everybody likes yeah. Cavani. Look, I wanted City to sign Cavani when he was out there kind of in the wind maybe to join another club. I thought he would have fit really well at City when he was available. And he's a professional, and he scores goals. All this is true. I'm just saying, when you look at all the component parts of PSG's side, I don't want to go into that right now, the way things were left at the end of this season. I'd rather let somebody else go in there and fix that and deal with it next year and sort out the Neymar mess and get Mbappe's head on straight and all of that. And then be the guy after the guy. Do that. So to answer your question, no, I'm not going to Arsenal because I'm not even sure Wenger's going to leave. I'm definitely going to Chelsea because Chelsea is in this rhythm right now where they win the league and then they completely dump everything. And then they win the league again. And then this year, again, not great. I expect that Chelsea will reload like they always do. And whoever the new manager is, is going to get the new manager bump. And pretty soon it's going to be Chelsea and Man City at the top of the Premier League, battling it out for the league title and going far in the Champions League because that's who Chelsea are. They have bad seasons, but man, the good seasons are so good. I'm going to respectfully disagree with your point on Cavani being on maybe the downside of his prime. Um, just, you know, let, let's go by, you know, the I guess the weakest argument, which is just the uh, the goals per game kind of statistic. He's scored the second most goals um, that he's scored in uh, the last four seasons. Uh, 2016-17, he scored 35 goals in 35 starts, 36 matches overall in Liga. And this year, he's on pace. He's got 24 goals in 26 games started, 27 games overall in Liga. And 
And in the Champions League this year, he scored seven goals in eight games. So I don't necessarily think that, um, you know, at, at this point, I wouldn't be looking to get away from Cavani, who's now the all-time goal scorer for PSG. Um, but you do have to kind of wonder what they're going to what they're going to do, because, you know, for as impatient as Real Madrid might be, PSG has has shown this propensity for wanting to hire fire managers at, at will and, you know, go out and make the big splashy move. Uh, they, they're essentially, uh, is it, is it fair to call them the Washington Redskins of, of, uh, European football? I mean, like legitimately they have owners who have no patience. They decide that they're going to go out and splash the most money possible. And ultimately, uh, I guess the, the difference between them and the Redskins is they actually win their league. But, you know, when it actually comes to championships and, and things that matter, um, they don't really factor in. What we've learned is that all the money in the world won't save you if your manager doesn't know what to do with the money or get the right players in. Pep Guardiola is taking a lot of abuse widely for having this powerful side in England that is the best team that money can buy, quote unquote. But the truth is, City have been spending this sort of money for almost a decade now, maybe past a decade. I don't have their books in front of me. The bottom line is, There have been managers who were able to handle it and managers who spent the money in the wrong places. And Guardiola, in a year and a half, has proven that with what he has on hand and what he goes out and gets in the market, he will make a powerhouse club. I think if Guardiola had managed PSG this season, it would have been a different result for them in the round of 16. That's how good Guardiola is. Going back to your Cavani point very quickly... There is no conversion rate on Champions League goals. Those are all legit goals, and Cavani is a fine performer at the Champions League level. There's no question about that. He's also 31 years old, and there is a conversion rate problem with League 1 goals. I don't want to hear how many goals you have in League 1, because that is a junior varsity league compared to almost every other European league that we discuss. So, for me, Cavani's a wonderful player, and he's had an amazing career. I'm just not sure I want to manage a club where he is a focal point of what I'm trying to do. All right. That's fair. Um, You were talking about managers who, you know, might not know what they're doing with their talent. Um, You know, we, we brought this up on the last episode and I I think you kind of hammered in on a little bit. Jose Mourinho's job that he's been doing at United, um, especially in managing what what I I think many would consider managing United's exit from the Champions League. Um, you know, we, we kind of highlighted a lot of the questionable uh, tactical decisions and personnel decisions that, that he made. Um, but he went on a really, really strange rant uh, in the past week. I don't know if you, uh, if you caught much of it, but um, he, he went on this rant about how um, the, the team just kind of played in a, in a clumsily or in a clumsy manner. Um, he, he said that they played with no passion. They played with no... Uh, beauty in the game. It was just weird. It really felt like a strange kind of self implosion or like a self inflicted wound where like he he seems like he's become just kind of disinterested in in holding down that that gig. And I don't know if it's because he's feeling the pressure of what it is to be the Manchester United manager, or if it really is just uh that he's that disgusted with his players. I, I like I'm not I'm not positive, but like they're second in the league and it feels like he's, you know, Louis van Gaal in, in the way that the media, I think, has treated him and the way that this team is just kind of looked at in general. Um, 
is any of this Mourinho's fault? Is it all his fault? Is it just, you know, it's impossible for him to live up to expectations? Like, wh- what are we looking at with Jose Mourinho and even his future going forward? Well, it's not his fault that City are running away with the Premier League. There's only so much Jose Mourinho can do about what City does in City's matches. It is Jose Mourinho's fault that with the ingredients on hand in his pantry, he keeps serving up dull, uninspiring dishes that nobody wants to come back to the restaurant and eat again. That said, I agree with you. Uh, The criticism and veiled shaming of players in his dressing room after a 2-0 win over Brighton and Hove Albion to get to the semifinals of the FA Cup was poorly timed, sort of bizarre, and felt almost like a cry for help and almost a statement of, listen, board at Manchester United, it's me or it's these guys. I will stay if you give me a war chest to blow out a lot of this dead wood that you have in that dressing room. But if you do not give me the money I've asked for and you make me continue to manage a team that doesn't have the ability to contend at the highest levels. Now, people can argue whether, in fact, that's true. I'm not sure it is. They have a lot of great players in United, but it's just not coming together. And maybe that's the manager's fault. But Mourinho's point is, I need to blow out a lot of these players that were not my choices. Get rid of them however you have to. Give me the money I need to get the players I need. And now I can contend with City who have entrenched themselves as a power in the league, and Chelsea, who you know are coming back. That's, I think, what Mourinho was trying to say in not so many words with his little tantrum uh, after a win. He went on this thing about heritage, too, as if as if United has no history or no heritage. I mean, uh, at, at one point, I, I, I guess it was after they got knocked out by Sevilla, it was as if he kind of compared the kind of club in standing, you know, Sevilla is to, to that, you know, uh, of, of United. It was it was kind of bizarre, but this thing that he went on about heritage, like he was naming a bunch of players from City. He was naming, um, you know, when he first got hired at, at Real Madrid and talking about, like, the uh, the Ronaldos of the world and how uh, Javi Alonso was a guy who had, you know, made a quarterfinal before and how that was heritage. And it's just weird. Like, if you go back and read the transcript, and if people haven't listened to it or haven't read the entire transcript, I encourage you to uh, to Google it. It It is one of the most awkward, weird, and, and like you said, poorly timed kind of rants I think I've ever seen a coach, a manager in any sport deliver. And ultimately, his justification for it uh, was that, you know, his players seem to do better after he calls them out. Well, wouldn't it have been a lot more effective to have called them out before the match against Sevilla, like when it actually matters? I, I, I just don't get, I don't get the timing of it. And I, again, I don't know if this is because he's looking at, you know, what it is that people expect in the theater of dreams and knowing that like maybe for the way the the style that he wants his team to play with, like it's going to take parking the bus and it's going to take you know, these ugly kind of wins and, and tactical decisions like that that kind of fly in the face of what people expect from United. Like, that's how they're supposed to be. 
um, the best version of of United that he's going to manage, and and like he doesn't think that you know ownership or management or the fans are going to support it. But like, it's a it's a weird kind of conundrum he's in because if he thinks that that's the best style to win, but the club's you know heritage or lack thereof in his opinion or or the sentiments of the fans, you know, kind of fly in in contrast to that, then it really does become a a matter of you know, do you stand on principle and saying that this is how you think you could win the league? Or do you kind of succumb to, you know, what is, you know, expected of a United team, change your tactical style and, and just kind of roll it out and maybe you end up in like fifth. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just, he he's in a, what I would consider a no-win situation except for the fact that like, it's a win to manage Manchester United. It's a lot of pressure, but you have an ownership group that has a ton of money you're always going to be a desired location or a desirable place for players to transfer to. I, you know, if, if you don't like the players you have, it's pretty easy, I would say, in, a, in international football to, to get guys in and get guys out. We've, we've seen that kind of turnover at plenty of clubs. Now, you know, you can make the case like you did before that PSG has been kind of ravaged by decisions like that. And ultimately, you know, you should probably roll with a uh, you know a set core group of players. I would assume that Lukaku's got to be part of that, and De Gea's got to be part of that. But if you're unhappy with the squad you have, you got to get changes made. But you know, you can't go out and and want to get a Paul Pogba at a record rate, and then you know not start him in the second half or the second leg of a uh, a Champions League you know match to try to get into the final eight. You gave me a lot to unpack here. I'll do the very best I can. I'll start with your comment that. It's a strange decision by Mourinho to blast his team after winning an FA Cup quarterfinal against an overmatched Brighton and Hove Albion. And that's the time he picks to blast his players. And you ask, well, why didn't he blast them before Sevilla? Maybe he gets a different result. I think the honest truth there is that Mourinho believed that the side he was going to roll out and the tackle decisions he made against Sevilla would be more than enough because Sevilla are in sixth place in La Liga. And I know you love La Liga and you think that Sevilla are underrated or maybe not being given their proper due. But when Mourinho decides to start Matic and Fellaini in a must-win match in the Champions League at home against Sevilla, he's telling you, here's my plan. I'm not letting them score in the first 60 minutes or so, and then we're going to go out and score at the end. Maybe it'll be extra time, but we'll do it, and we'll get through. It didn't work out that way, obviously. So he can't come out after the Sevilla loss and kill his players because that's a real problem. Now the media is going to be like, hey, man, your tactics were a mess. How can you possibly point at the players? So he eats it after the Champions League match. And he just kind of rolls along and says, these things happen. Heritage, I was in the seat before. And by the way, as an aside, I can't imagine what it must be like for any United manager, much less Mourinho, to manage these matches with Ferguson in the stands. You've got to be kidding me. Moving yeah, on. I, I, you know what? Really quick, this is a, a stupid aside on your aside. Um, but I remember playing youth league basketball. Uh, I want to say it was like the under 10 team or maybe the under 12 team. I was atrocious. I didn't play. Um, but we had a year where we made the championship. And it was a, it was a great moment. And we had this coach. I don't remember what his last name was, but his name was Tony. And he was just like, he was a wild man. And we never responded well as a team. 
And finally, he like, I don't know if he had an anxiety attack or whatever, but he stepped away from the team. The assistant coach took over. He was a much calmer guy. He, he like kind of had us believing in the love of the game and supporting each other. Got to the championship. Again, I had nothing to do with this at all. I think I made two baskets in the entire year. One was a beautiful uh, foul line jumper, and the other was uh, a nice baseline J uh, that was nothing but net. Best shot of my life. I had blonde highlights and rec specs uh, with the, uh, the strap around the back. I remember all these things vividly. It was a great moment. Um, we made the championship game, and Coach Tony showed up, and the entire dynamic changed. All of the positive uh, reinforcement that we've been getting from from the former assistant, now head coach, uh, seemed to go out the window, and it almost felt like uh, our coach, in a in a sense, um, kind of felt like he had to prove himself to the former head coach, and the whole thing imploded. Um, and and yeah, to your point, like you've got a massive legend at the club sitting in the stands, and no matter what you do, if you're Jose Mourinho, even if you win the league you're still coaching not only in his shadow, but you're coaching in front of him. And ultimately, like, what other coach in Europe right now that is that is retired has the legacy that Sir Alex Ferguson has and also has to legitimately, literally manage in front of him at every home game? Mourinho is not just managing figuratively in the shadow of Ferguson. He's managing literally yep. in the shadow of Ferguson because the lights are behind Ferguson. And when the cameras hit Ferguson, he's in shadow. He's this dark figure that looms over everything. And while we're here, the United Faithful at the Theater of Dreams, as we talk about, love to chant, attack, attack, attack. And sure, there were epics and eras and long stretches of time where, through many factors, United had all the best players and the best manager, and they could afford to take a lot of chances and stuff the ball down your throat and score as many goals as they wanted and be almighty Manchester United, glory, glory, Man United, etc. and so forth. Well, here's the thing. Ferguson punts. They bring in Moyes, who is a tactician slash defensive guy. That's a disaster. They bring in Van Hall. No one knows what Van Hall was doing the entire time he was there. So what do they do? They reach out for the biggest name, not necessarily the manager that fits what they like to do, but the biggest name which is Jose Mourinho. What is Mourinho's best attribute? Defensive football. Packing it in. 1-0, 2-1, That's what you're going to get. As I've heard said many times by a lot of football pundits, Mourinho does what it says on the package. He is not going to change his ways any more than Guardiola is going to change his ways when last year Guardiola's means were a mess. He did things, Mourinho did things his way last year with a bunch of mismatched parts at City and got cut to ribbons in some matches. And a lot of people were calling him Fraudiola, and a lot of people were saying he doesn't understand the English game and listen to him talking about how tackles are overrated and we don't worry about tackles, and they mocked him. But it took about nine months, maybe 12 months, for Guardiola to say, no, here's the thing, my way works, and I've got the players I have now, and look what I'm doing to you. Look what I'm doing to this league. Mourinho came in with a mandate to win. And listen, to be fair to the man, he is winning. They're second in the league. They're in a very good position to win the FA Cup if they take care of business the way that it should be expected that they would. It hasn't been an outright disaster. The Champions League bomb out is going to draw some unwanted attention. But day's end, 
this isn't like Wenger falling completely out of Champions League contention and hanging on by a thread to Europa League contention. You know, this isn't even Everton going into the deep recesses of the bottom half of the league. Man United are still second. They're still in contention for silverware. It could be a lot worse. Yep. Um, it, I want to just uh, just really quick. This is going to be the ongoing aside uh, for the rest of the episode. So Sevilla right there in sixth. <laughs> I just want to keep rehashing this. Um, let's compare really quick. If you, uh, uh, I don't know, play around Robin here. Sixth place within the five major leagues. You have Sevilla. You have AC Milan. Uh, Red Bull Leipzig, Nantes, and uh, Arsenal. Uh, what are your standings? Round robin style. You've got to pick a team that finishes, you know, fifth, fourth, third, second, and first. Without Didn't any re- just, without without any research, I just just got any it. research. Just, well, sure, just, that's just, just got that's it. just great. Just that's got just it. great. Leganes is twelfth in La Liga right now. Yeah, and Sevilla just lost to them. So yeah. there's a little bit of research for you. All right, so Nantes is last, right? We, I agree. Probably Leipzig is interesting. Um, well, they're another Jekyll and Hyde. No one knows what you get from them week to I, week. I guess AC Milan would be fourth. Do we put Leipzig in third? Yeah, I think you have to put Milan in fourth. Yeah. All right, so Leipzig f- goes to third, and then it really is. It's between Sevilla and, and Arsenal. I'm and- taking Arsenal because I believe in my heart of hearts with all due respect to Arsene Wenger, who has been an unbelievable manager for a long time, the Invincibles dragging that club into the heights of English football where, let's face it, they hadn't always been. Um, but he's about five years past his sell-by date. Winning the FA Cup would have been a great time to leave. He chose not to. I think anyone with fresh ideas, new ideas, and a mandate from the board to put Arsenal back in the top four could do a better job than Wenger's going to do. So with all due respect to Sevilla, uh, I'm taking Arsenal in this ranking. That's fine. I was uh, just looking to stall for a second because I was looking for the uh, the infographic that came out. Um, I saw it. I remember seeing it in the fall, and it kind of came back around recently. Uh, it kind of went viral again. Um, you mentioned David Moyes before. Um in July of 2013, David Moyes signed his uh, six-year contract with Manchester United. Um, about less than a year later, he was he was fired by Manchester United. Uh, a few months later, November of 2014, he was appointed the uh, Real Sociedad manager. Uh, a year later, fired by Real Sociedad. Uh, in July of 2016, appointed Sunderland manager. Um, less than a year later, resigned as Sunderland manager. November 2017 appointed West Ham manager. Um, and here we are, you know, that was November of 2017. We are now in March of 2018, and we're still over a year away from what is supposed to be the expiration of his contract with United. Once again, I don't have the books in front of me. I was not David Moyes' agent during his negotiations with United. I wish I had been because I'd certainly be living in a bigger house. At day's end, you'd have to tell Moyes to take that job I'm sure it paid a ton of money. Uh, it killed his legacy to a large extent, but money talks. And if you have the chance to manage United, as you uh, referenced earlier, you take it. Just because it ended badly doesn't mean it was a bad decision by Moyes. That's a good point. Um, is there anything about the FA Cup that you want to 
uh, talk about. I'm looking at um, some of the notes uh, about MLS, which I think you know a little bit interesting. Is there anything FA Cup wise that um, that you took away from from this this past week? Uh, anything looking forward that you're excited about? Well, you have three of the four power clubs in the Premier League in it. You have United, you have Spurs, and Chelsea. And you have Southampton, who I think are going to be a sacrificial lamb. So, yes, I'm excited about it. I think there's a very good chance you're going to end up with either United and Chelsea or Spurs and Chelsea. And that's going to be a fun match to watch to end the season on May 19th. I mean, not end the season. The Premier League season will have ended. But the finals at Wembley on May 19th, Chelsea drew Southampton. They're going to win. I believe that wholeheartedly. I've already essentially betrayed myself on that. United and Spurs is going to be a very interesting semifinal for a lot of the reasons we've talked about before. You have stuff going on off the pitch in both of those clubs, United and Spurs, that place a lot more import on that semifinal that might not ordinarily be there. So that's going to be worth watching. Yes, I am excited for the FA Cup, even though City, unfortunately, bombed out to Wigan. Um, Let's take a look at MLS really quick uh, before we head out here. So the uh, Philadelphia Union, who's our you know local team, uh, they won in their first match of the season. Then, for some reason, were off for a week. In their second match, they uh, had a scoreless draw at home with uh, Columbus Crew. Um, they Columbus is unbeaten through three games. Um, we talked in the last episode about Toronto and um, New York Red Bull uh, making you know absolute. I, I don't know if we would call it history, but. Certainly upsetting the uh, the uh, was it the fruit cart? What is it? The apple cart? I, I don't the remember. established order. Yeah. Uh, no, but what is it? There's there's a upsetting the apple cart. That one, yes. Um, Chivas and Red Bull, Club America and Toronto, uh, and Concacaf Champions League. Uh, it it seems like Toronto has put more into Concacaf Champions League than they have in their their own domestic league in MLS. Uh, fair to say? They'd be crazy not to look. In the domestic leagues in Europe, yes, the season is long, but if you have aspirations to win the league and you're aggregating points all the way along, you can't start out 0-3 or 0-2-1 or some such nonsense because you're spotting too much of a lead on the other clubs. MLS with the playoff system, Toronto FC knows as long as they accrue enough points to finish in the top six, what do they really care about where they are? Like, they'd like to have home field. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter. If they have the best club when they get to the playoffs, which, you know, five times out of six they will, then what do they care about what happens early in the season? Man, this is a big deal if they do something that CONCACAF Champions League. This is something that MLS clubs haven't done in almost a generation, is to come through and possibly win this trophy. Now, as I said last week, if I have to watch Josie Altidore and Michael Bradley raise another trophy outside the United States, that isn't a World Cup. I'm going to be really upset. But be that as it may, they have a chance to do it, and they're wise to expend this energy as long as the CONCACAF Champions League is going on. Because let's be honest, Toronto FC is going to play a lot of dog teams in the next six to eight months in the MLS schedule and accrue plenty of points and make the playoffs, and then they'll see what they do when they get to the playoffs. That's what the MLS permits these clubs to do. It's interesting, you know, especially I, I like the way that some of your uh, your notes for the show are, are written. Uh, I can I can read them in my Phil voice. Um, it, it's interesting to see teams that are 
uh, recent expansion sides and even one that is an expansion side this year in like NYCFC and LAFC um, that have significant money behind them and significant players that they've been able to bring in as, as designated players, you know, getting points early in the season um, while established clubs have, you know, that have, have been in MLS for, let's say like upwards of eight to 10 years seem to be struggling to keep up. It's, it's a common theme that's existed with the Philadelphia union you can make the case that uh, the New England Revs have kind of found themselves in a similar boat. Um, the way that MLS kind of went from, I, I don't even think we could say like MLS 1.0 to, to 2.0. It almost feels like there was MLS 1.0, 1.5, and then we're at like MLS 3.0. They just totally skipped an operating system. Um, are, you, are you surprised in the way that MLS is kind of allowing these uh, these like bigger pocketed um or deeper pocketed owners and ownership groups, um, what what seems to be latitude that they hadn't given, you know, some of the earlier expansion sides, uh, you know, to this point. Yeah, I, I of course omitted from that list Atlanta United with Arthur Blank as their uh, their owner, who's you know got probably maybe the deepest pockets in the league. Am I surprised? In a word, no. They tried it the democratic way with the strict salary capping and the intent to have a parody-based league where everybody had a chance every year and how'd that go for them not so great so now you have a league that is going to at a very limited and much smaller level model a lot of the european leagues where the very best moneyed squads are going to have most of the success most seasons and as long as atlanta united are drawing 70,000 supporters to that new dome in Atlanta, and D.C. United have to play at a festival ground this weekend because their stadium isn't built. I don't care. The teams with the money ought to win because that's a disgrace. All right. That's, I mean, I think that's, I think that's pretty fair. Uh, I, I will continue to be disappointed in the model. I, I think one of the biggest issues that MLS faces um, – in acquiring fans, keeping them, getting legitimate credibility, is their systems are so complicated to understand. General allocation money, targeted allocation money, buying down designated players, the the way that teams and the league, you know, kind of manage uh, transfer fees and and who really gets that money, and can you buy into an additional pool of league provided cash? which is something that uh, union owner Jay Sugarman had come out in an article by Jonathan Tannewald um, earlier this week. You know, he made it sound as if there's this like extra pot of money that, that very few teams knew about that. Like he somehow bought into, I think it was 2.8 million this year and next year or something like that. Um, I, I just find that the way that MLS runs, it's so much is, is smoke and mirrors. And so much is just kind of behind a, a curtain where, um, I, I just think it's it's really really a, a complicated um, a complicated beast to try to navigate, especially if you're somebody who's new to the league. Even if you're a front office guy, it, it feels like the the teams that do the best in a sense are ones that have a front office that you know has at least a few people who have been you know included or have been part of teams um, in MLS for a longer period of time because they happen to know a, f- a few uh, collective bargaining loopholes or, you know, transfer loopholes. It just feels like, you know, it's a difficult league to kind of wrap your head around. And ultimately, until they kind of clean that up, 
it's almost like looking at the U.S. tax code, right? Like, you know it's there. You know that there are people who know how to manipulate it. And if you have the most money, you're more likely going to have the people to pay to, you know, help find those loopholes. Uh, whereas if you're a, a team that has little experience or has a cheap owner, you know, you're you're kind of screwed. I have two quick observations on this, though. First of all, is MLS's financial rule structure that much more complicated than financial fair play? Can you explain financial fair play to me? Because I sure can't. I don't know how Man City gets away with what they get away with. I don't know how these clubs get away with what they get away with in terms of transfers. So, yeah, again, at a much smaller level with much smaller dollars, MLS is letting people play fast and loose with financial constraints. Again, I have no problem with it because going on to my second point on this point, does the average MLS supporter give one wit about the salary cap or the rules or who breaks them or who finds loopholes, who does things the right way, who does things the wrong way? God, no. I can tell you the Sons of Ben could care less. If the Sons of Ben could let the union be purchased by Philadelphia's version of blank, they'd do it tomorrow because they're starving for a champion. And right now, they're not going to get it. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I know what you're, you're getting at with that. Um, the only argument that I would make is, I think that there have been enough small market teams that are upset with the, the way that, that their owners, even, even a team like New England, I think maybe has the right to be the most frustrated of, of any fan base in the league. You've got Robert Kraft as your owner, who's got ridiculously deep pockets, and he just refuses to invest in the team. And it's almost as if, you know, he looks at, at the uh, the Revs as like, I don't know, he, he did the fans a favor by putting a team in New England, so you should just be happy with whatever you get. They're not even going through the motions of making it look like they're trying to field a competitive team. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I do think that to some extent the average fan of an MLS team does care uh, or cares more about the optics you know, like any time that um, like an LAFC is able to go out and in their first season or even Atlanta is able to go out in their first or second season and acquire some of these designated players on record transfer fees. Um, you know, you, you kind of wonder how how they are allowed to do some of these moves when it seems like no matter what, no matter how much or how little money your team has, um, you know, these smaller market clubs and even some that are in bigger markets with, you know, cheaper owners. Um, it just feels like you're kind of left by the wayside in a league that, you know, to your point earlier, was supposed to be founded around, you know, parity and, and everybody having a shot. It really does feel like the, the top six or maybe the top eight teams in the league are going to continue to pull away. Uh, and, and a lot of that is just going to be by virtue of them being able to, uh, to outspend the competition by, you know, a 10x multiplier in some cases. Not to put too fine a point on it, but Robert Kraft has a lot of irons and a lot of fires. He just gave away Jimmy Garoppolo to hold on to an aging Tom Brady. Of course, just threw 500-plus yards in the Super Bowl. But let's face it, he's not getting any younger. And then on top of that, Kraft is denying the paternity of a child of a young female friend of his. I'm not going to say any more than that because I don't want to get sued. But Robert, Robert Kraft has about as much interest in the everyday details and goings-on of the revolution as he does with his car maintenance. It's just somebody else's problem. I love ending on the trashing of a New England uh, a New England team. Let's do it every week. 
well, you know, if we ever pick up uh, some listeners in the Boston area, I don't want to totally alienate them. They can just kind of skip through our MLS parts from this point on. Although, in fairness, I actually feel bad for for uh, Revs fans, so I don't intend on uh, on bashing them too much. They, you know, it's it's kind of like beating a dead horse at this point, um, and that's coming from a place as a Union fan. So uh, here we are. Uh, Phil, it's been fun again. Um, a reminder to all the people out there, this has been Crossing Broad FC, part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Um, there are other podcasts, other shows to listen to uh, that will be rolling out soon. I'm going to kind of go down the uh, the real quick list here. Of course, if you're a soccer fan and you are uh, based in the Philadelphia-ish region, you're a union fan or a fan of MLS at large, uh, one of the other shows on this network is It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia, which is hosted by Kevin Kincaid, who will be popping on this show from time to time. He's a former beat writer for the Philadelphia Union. He now writes about the Sixers and the Eagles for CrossingBroad.com. Uh, if you are into Philadelphia sports in general, of course, the anchor show for this whole thing is Crossing Broadcast, which is hosted by uh, Crossing Broad's uh, founder, CEO, whatever else, uh, whatever other titles you want to give him, Kyle Scott and myself, uh, where we kind of cover practically every Philadelphia team there is. Uh, with the exception of like maybe the Philadelphia Soul. Sorry, Arena Football fans, there's no podcast for you yet. Um, there will be a hockey show that's going to be Anthony Sanfilippo, who's the uh, Flyers beat writer for Crossing Broad. That's going to be him and me doing something. Um, and then a baseball show that's uh, going to be Anthony as well as Bob Wankel, who's been writing a lot of different things for the website, but uh, his real focus is baseball. I think I hit all the shows, and if I didn't, I apologize. But those guys uh, will be rolling out shows in the near future. We'll be doing some posts on CrossingBroad.com, including everybody's Twitter handles and all that. So make sure that you uh, keep an eye out for that. Of course, continue the conversation with Crossing Broad FC. You can call it Crossing Broad FC. You can throw a hashtag in front of that. You can throw hashtag CBFC. Don't forget to follow me at JoyOnBroad and my dear friend here, Phil, at PhilKaidel. Uh, that's K-E-I-D-E-L on Twitter. Um, tell us how much you think uh, you know we know or don't know about international football. Uh, I'm assuming that you will love Phil and detest many of my opinions, and that's fine. Uh, but here we are providing a podcast for you that is hopefully going to touch on every possible league and the main storylines going on in uh, in each of those leagues. Unfortunately, it just kind of feels like at this point a lot of uh, – a lot of the ink has dried on, you know, the the final the champions in each of these leagues, with maybe the the exception of Serie A, I think is at least somewhat close enough. But uh, you know, even going into the summer, um, as we kind of pivot a little bit to MLS, um, you know, we'll be we'll be focusing in on on the big um, headlines and the big stories. In we the, may in even talk about matter. the World Cup. We'll see about the World Cup. Yeah, we I keep forgetting. See, it sucks. Like I kind of. I don't forget about the World Cup, but it's it's not in the forefront of my mind. You know, thanks, Michael Bradley. Thanks, Josie Altidore. Really appreciate everything you guys have done. It's, uh Who? Klinsman. Oh, yeah. I thought I thought you were saying Klimsy as in, like, Clint Dempsey, and you were making no. up a, a cute Klimsy. name for him. K-L-I-N-S-I. Listen, don't hate on Jurgen, all right? Like, Bruce Arena didn't do a much better job when he came in, which was maybe the laziest hiring in uh, U.S. men's national team history. But, uh... That's a that's a conversation for a different day. Uh, this has been Crossing Broadcast or Crossing Broad FC. Good God, I do too many of these shows now. Crossing Broad FC, part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Remember, follow Phil and I on Twitter, and we will talk to you again next week.